This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 80. I want to take a moment right now to thank all of my listeners for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio.com, or wherever else you might be getting your podcasts. And I also wanted to remind you to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group, which I'll talk more about at the tail end of this episode. So for this week's episode, as I promised my listeners, I'm being joined by Brett Bergram, who is one of the hosts of the Master Photography Podcast, and he also has his own show called the Latitude Photography Podcast, and he is a travel and outdoor photographer. So let's go ahead and join up with Brent now. All right, now as I promised my listeners this week, I'm now being joined by Brett Bergram, and I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. Uh, he's from the master, one of the hosts of the Master Photography Podcast, and he also has the Latitude Photography Podcast. I enjoy listening to him on both shows every week. So, Brent, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Good to be here. Awesome. And uh, let's go ahead and let you introduce yourself a little bit to my listeners. Tell them a little bit about yourself and the kind of stuff that you do. All right. Well, uh, in my photography journey, I classify or identify myself as a travel outdoor photographer, which is fairly, I guess, purposefully broad. I, I absolutely love the idea of traveling and experiencing a new culture, a new place, new vistas, you know, landscapes, whatever. Uh, but also the city work is, is, you know, in a European city, South American city, Asian city, it's all interesting to me. So I like those kinds of things. But recently, these last couple of years or months, whatever, I've been somewhat more focusing on the more intimate landscape style of work. And I'm really enjoying a lot of that, just looking at uh, what I can find in the landscape itself. And so that's where I am photographically. Uh, other parts of my life, I'm a professor at a university, a small private university here in Southeast Washington. I come from Walla Walla, Washington. And I've been doing this job. I teach design and photography and I've been doing this for 13 years now. And then I have a wife and four kids and we just bought a small farm that we're waiting to close on and we'll be starting a lavender farm and a few other items that we'll be doing. My wife, it's all her <laughs> for the farm. I'll be supporting and doing things, whatnot like that, but it's got some good outbuildings and I'll be able to produce uh, a really nice girl create, I should say a really nice fine art print studio and a YouTubing and podcasting studio will be mixed in with all that as well. So I'm really looking forward to expanding everything I do uh, with that new property. Yeah, that definitely sounds exciting. Now, when you set up your studio in the new property, are you going to go as far as soundproofing the whole room uh, for when you're doing your audio and video recordings? I will do a good amount of that. So what I'm hoping to be able to do, um, I haven't measured out the exact square footage that I'm going to be able to make this studio, but the building that it's going to be in is about 2,800 square feet, and I'm going to take about a quarter of that. So 
uh, in the neighborhood of 700 maybe square feet. So it'll be between 500 and 700 square feet. And that is a vast improvement over the uh, my previous home. I had a little studio. It was only about 120 square feet. And so that, that'll be a vast improvement over the space that I'm able to use. And my hope is to be able to host a couple times a year some printing workshops there where people can come to the valley. The Walla Walla Valley is just absolutely gorgeous and great for some photography. We're only a couple hours away from some really awesome other places like the Palouse and uh, you're just there's just so many good things here a lot of which a lot of people don't really know about you know specifically walla walla because you know especially you're from you know georgia you know not many people have heard of, of walla walla in your area and so uh, to come out here specifically for a photography type workshop is still not on many people's radars but when we go up to the Palouse and things like that a lot of people know about that region um so the area where I'm going to host the the printing workshops that'll that'll you know hopefully the the plan is that I'll be able to accommodate five to six people at a time, and that part wouldn't be soundproofed. But the other portion towards the front of the area, the more presentation area, I do plan to have some sound dampening and proofing there, and I'll be building it all myself. So I'll be designing it and building it all myself, and it'll be a, a good project to undertake over the, the coming year. Oh, yeah. Nothing wrong with that. And it, yeah. it's phenomenal. I use a small area in my uh, basement. There's a section of my basement that was already finished when I bought the house. And I just went on Amazon and got some soundproofing panels on there and put them up. I've got some more I'm going to put up yet to try to make the acoustics even better. But so, yeah, you can do it yourself um, yeah. and save yourself a lot of money because I know bringing in a company to do soundproofing is super expensive. <laughs> well, not only that, but just, you know, it's an empty shell of a building right now. It's wide open and we've got it's a really well built. It's got a wonderful concrete floor and all that stuff. It's just making it, you know, customizing it to what I want and what I need for what my goals are. It's going to be amazing. But then adding a little bit of soundproofing on my podcast, Latitude Photo Podcast the last few episodes ago uh, where I was recording in my old home studio, you could hear them getting progressively more tinny and more echoey. <laughs> and it's amazing what happens when things are pulled out of the room and it just is like, ah, you know, and right now I'm in my school office and I've got a whole wall where I, the brick I covered with these uh, foam panels and it's just amazing how wonderful it makes it sound and just is doing lots better here uh with, with a little bit of soundproofing so yeah we'll be doing that uh but i do plan on a little bit of lighting so i can do some youtube videos there in the studio and and other things like that so i'm really looking forward to all that happening here in the next you know it'll roll out over the next several months for sure yeah that's going to be awesome i'm looking forward to that as well it's going to be cool to see how you get the uh the studio at the new place set up yeah. especially once you start doing your videos well, and I'm going to make, I actually, I'm going to, I have a YouTube channel that I'll actually be putting on there some ideas, some thoughts and ideas, you know, where I'll draw out the studio ideas and I'll just put it out there and kind of talk about it with the audience and just say, you know, what do you guys think? You know, it's always good to hear back from some people and what other ideas they have, because, uh, the, I can come up with plenty of ideas for sure. But when I get, uh, you know, people kind of thinking about it too. It always spurs more and better ideas. And so I'll, I'll kind of make a kind of an experience out of it on the YouTube channel, but you know, we have to move in first. So I don't want to count my chickens before they hatch. 
Hey, I don't blame you there. And hey, you, you never know. You might get some listeners that are actually that actually specialize in soundproofing and stuff like that. that yeah. Give you some pointers. That would be fantastic. Yeah, actually, I already have a fellow when I did a casting call for Latitude. I had a fellow reach out. He's from Tennessee. I forget. I think it was I think it was Nashville. And he was like, yeah, you know, I actually do audio engineering you know, he's, and so I was like, oh, amazing. And so he gave me a few tips actually for what I was already doing. So yeah, I expect, um, there, there already is some people like that in the audience and that's just awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. Actually, see, I live in Georgia, but I'm originally from Pennsylvania, but aside from that, okay. I am familiar with Walla Walla cause I spent 10 years in the army all over the country. And then I drove, oh, truck, yeah. I drove truck for a few years while I was putting myself through college the first time. So I've been to Washington state quite a few times. Yeah, I, and I if don't you've know been, if I've actually ever been in Walla Walla, but I know I've been close to it. Sure. Well, yeah, way back in the history, you know, there was a huge uh, army fort here, a Fort Walla Walla. It's a museum now. And then uh, as far as the Army Corps of Engineers, the whole region, the whole Pacific Northwest region is headquartered here in Walla Walla. And so when you're talking about all the dams along the Columbia River, uh, Snake River, I should say most of the dams on the Columbia River, uh, the Snake River and um, some down into Oregon, they're all managed from the office here in Walla Walla. So, yeah, as far as the, the region is concerned, you know, there's lots of um, infrastructure here and lots of otherwise interest and huge historical value. But, yeah, once you get people outside the region, it's just like, yeah, why'd you say that twice? <laughs> so. <laughs> Oh, uh, that's funny. Okay, so getting to the first question I have for you this week, sure. how, how did you get started in photography? And if I remember correctly, like me, you started out in the film days. Absolutely. So way back, I actually sort of have two, um, I guess you could say, entry points. One was uh, sort of like a near miss, so to speak, where it didn't take on. Um, back in when I was a teenager, uh, I was 16 I thought photography was would be a kind of a cool hobby. And uh, even as a child, I remember asking for a camera for Christmas and whatnot, and I never got one. Uh, I think the parents were kind of afraid of the ongoing expense of film and developing. And so I got a little more interested as I was uh, becoming a teenager in my teen years. And the unfortunate circumstance happened where I ended up rear-ending a Cadillac in stop and go traffic. So I was going like five miles an hour and I had my little Subaru that I was driving and I hit this Cadillac and it barely scratched it. I mean, it was just, you know, I'm looking at it. I'm like, I don't see anything. And the, the lady who was driving the car, she was like, well, it's on a lease and I'm just going to get hit like mad if, you know, if I don't replace it and if I don't you know, when I return the lease, if it's not in pristine condition, she's going to get hit like mad. And so I was like, yeah, fine, whatever. Well, I had saved up a bunch of money to buy an Nikon 6006 and a couple of lenses. And that next day, I was driving back home from visiting a friend. Um, I lived in the Chicago area, suburbs of Chicago, and I had a friend who had moved to southwest Michigan. So I was driving back and stop and go traffic and hit this car and the money went to buy her a bumper instead of me a camera. And so that's my near miss. And then I, when I got to college, I had another interest where I took a photography class my sophomore year and it just kind of stuck with me. 
And I kept coming back to it even after the class was over. And so I just was like, you know, maybe there's something here. And so by October of 97, I started my own photography business and my first address on the, the business license was my dorm, my dorm room. And then shortly after that, long story short, my folks moved to town. They, they were in New Jersey, but then they moved to town, actually moved in with them and just kept at my photography doing uh, my own thing as a side business for the longest time, but really started back in college and uh, have just simply progressed from there. After college, I started working for some local businesses providing uh, you know, image services for them. And I actually got on contract with the business and was on retainer for them. And it worked out really well until I was booking myself out six months in advance and they would come to me and say, well, we have an event we need you to cover. And I'd be like, I'm already booked. I'm sorry. And so that didn't work out so well. And so we, you know, got rid of that arrangement, but just continued on with the travel and um, outdoor interests and focused more heavily on that ever since. Cool. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with being booked up six months in advance. That's always good. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it was about these events that I wanted to go to or these areas that I wanted to go to, and I already had things planned. And it was the kind of thing where I was just like, am I willing to cancel my plans? Because this is what I really want to do. This is the type of imagery I really want to make. And do I really want to cancel my plans? Or do I want to get out of this this contract? And really, I just wanted to get out of that contract. Yeah. And so I, I kind of used that, if you will, as a as an excuse to get out of the contract and, and it, everything ended amicably. It was just fine. Nothing wrong with it. It's just, my goodness, that was so long ago now. Um, early two thousands, I forget the exact time frame, but early two thousands that ended and, uh, just been doing things independently ever since. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Now, yeah. with, the, with the photography itself, what made you decide to specialize in traveling outdoor? Well, there's just this innate interest that I have always in traveling. And when I'm out there on the road, it is satisfying so many things about my personality and so many things that are important to me, whether it's just the sense of discovery or the idea that I'm just curious about what's around the next corner. What is, you know, what's out there that is available for me? And then the idea of photography blending that the reason I really like photography is because it blends my desire, my need to be creative with my need to be technical and the like too. So I'm, I'm very even keeled in that respect where I thrive on understanding the technical side of things, the computer, the science, however you want to describe it. But I also just love the idea of being able to be, fully creative and fully artistic and fully expressive in that, you know, regard as well. And when I can blend the two together, it's just absolutely heaven on earth. And I don't think there's anything better that I can do, whether it's traveling, you know, to the ends of the earth, which is a really what I really enjoyed doing, or just like a few weeks ago, I went up a couple of times to the Palouse because Getting on a plane, while it's possible, it's not possible to go internationally. And 
it, it seems that for me, the further I get away from home, the more interested I become. And that's just kind of my natural instinct, my natural sense of being. And I, I kind of credit my grandfather for that because when they retired, they were on the road like six months out of the year, just traveling, going this place and that place. And a majority of their time was spent on mission trips, building churches and the like, but they were still traveling and they did their own independent travel beyond that. So it was just, you know, the stories I would hear, the money. I mean, I have a stash of cash from all over the world, from these places I've never been to that my grandparents gave me. And it's just a nice type of, if you want to call it like a souvenir or something that was as a, as a young teen, you know, as, as a preteen to a young teen going through my teenage years, it was just constantly interesting to me. And I finally was able to go on my first major international trip when I was 16. And then I didn't do much after that. But then, you know, once, um, once I graduated college, uh, I started going hither and yon and, uh, you know, hopefully I can not look back and just keep doing more and more of it. Yeah, absolutely. And the cool thing about that would be is the the stash of money you got from the different places your grandparents went would not only be cool souvenirs, but maybe a little bit of a motivator for you absolutely. to someday go and check out those same countries. Absolutely. Uh, the ones that I find really the most interesting actually are the ones from Africa because the design is so different. The, the look of, you know, certainly everything about it is so different. And when you have something like that, there's just a little switch that goes on in my brain that says, I want to know more. And I want to, to see that and experience that. And Africa is like one of the continents I have yet to get to. So I've, I've not been to Australia. I've not been to Africa or Antarctica, but I've been to the other continents and you know, they're each amazing and Africa is next on my quote list of continents to get to. But, you know, will I be able to get there in the next five years? I have no idea. I don't have any solid plans or desires because there's so many other good things to, you know, pursue as well. And um, I just go where the opportunities take me. And, you know, when, when I look for opportunities uh, initially, you know, I started with the same mission group that my grandparents went with. Uh, in 2007, uh, 2008, nine, I think I skipped 2010 because I got my master's, finished up my master's then. But then 2011 and 12, and then again in 2014, went to various uh, trips in Central and South America. And I would always add on a little extra, uh, usually would add on a little extra time for my own travel to uh, go out and shoot my own pictures. Like when I was in Chile in 2008, I spent a week before the trip and a week after the trip just doing my own thing, shooting my own pictures. And it was amazing. I loved it. Oh yeah. That would be really sweet. So you ended up on that particular trip. You had what, three weeks there or four. So it was a total of four weeks out because the, the trip lasts about a total of two weeks. And since I was a staff member, uh, it's definitely two weeks for the staff. And so at that time I only had two kids, but you know, also in 2008, uh, cell phones were a lot different as far as, you know, the ubiquity of cell phones and the like. So being able to contact the family was very minimal. And I guess I should say in my family, the ubiquity of cell phones, because we really didn't adopt, you know, an international cell phone until I got my iPhone eight, basically. <laughs> well, no, the five C it worked internationally. Um, 
so it, it it was just like you know every every once in a while I would be able to call home and and make sure the wife knew I was still living, and um, or maybe happened to send an email somehow, but otherwise it's just kind of out on your own and and uh, experiencing and exploring the world and lots of wonderful places in Chile and and other other places and that, and that's really what it again boils back down to is just the sense of discovery and experience and seeing what is out there and then being able to capture that and tell the story that you can tell when you get back is just phenomenal. Love it. Yeah. Chile is definitely a place I would like to get to someday, but uh, whether or not I ever make it, I have no idea. Uh, Australia is a high priority for me. (laughs) Yes. Australia would be amazing. Um, One problem, you know, whenever I look out, you know, when I decide where do I want to go, what do I want to do? Certainly, I try and do some research, but one problem that I try and also overcome is just the opportunity overload. And so with Australia, while it would be amazing, I think there's opportunity overload as well. And it's just like, how do you know where to go? How do you decide what to do? That kind of a thing. Um, Alaska as well. Absolutely, 100% opportunity overload. And that's one of the reasons I didn't go to Alaska for so long, because I was just like, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> and um, so last December, December 2019, I made plans to go up to Unalaska Island. And I figured, you know what? It's an island, really small. And there's not much opportunity to get lost. So it's, it's going to be kind of safe that way. But it's also 800 miles away from the nearest hospital. And you can only get there by helicopter or airplane. So there is a certain risk factor there as well. But, you know, it's uh, the biggest fishing port, about the biggest fishing port, if not the biggest fishing port in Alaska. So I was like, you know, it's, it's well developed and everything is is going to be fine there. So I had a fantastic time. But it also helped to really focus in on very specific landscapes, very specific areas that were accessible in the wintertime. And it really made for some awesome images. And so to have something that's close in, I don't have to drive forever to get to a place. I I do like that. And Hong Kong was the same way where everything is really tight in and it's not very long to get anywhere. So there's a lot of benefits to some places like that. We don't have the opportunity overload. Yeah, I know uh, you just went to Unalaska this past winter, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that was December 2019. So really just before the COVID hit and everything was pretty copacetic up there, the, the actual challenge I had getting to the island was about a month or two before I, I was scheduled to be there, uh, they had a, an airplane run off the, the runway. And so they canceled regular commercial service for a while and i was like am i going to even be able to go and it worked out that the airlines were able to do something and i was still able to get out there i was using my alaska airlines miles to get out there so it cost me about 18 dollars to get out there and back but otherwise it would have cost me like more than 2500 dollars to get out there it's not cheap to get to and um thankfully the airlines figured something out they were not going to take new uh flights but since i had already booked 
they worked out a way to honor that booking. And so I was able to still go. And that was awesome. And then I also had a listener join me because I put it out there. I was just like, you know, I need someone to help me share costs on the rental car and the Airbnb, which there were three on the island. And so a listener dialed me up and said, so after about three or four conversations, we decided to make it happen and it worked out really well. Awesome. Yeah. And even though, uh, like you said, that area is a big fishing port, I'm sure you guys were probably out photographing more out in the middle of nowhere. So it's always good to have a buddy with you in case something goes wrong. Absolutely. There were many trails that we got onto that are just miles long and there's no one out there. And you do need a pass from um, the Unalaska Corporation, which is the, the native folks in that area. And you can buy that online before you go or you go to their to their office. But since we were arriving on the weekend, we bought it online before we went. And you just, yeah, you want to have someone with you because you leave town. There's no cell coverage. It, it just gets, especially in the wintertime, it just gets really sketchy. And then the people that we did end up talking to were telling us, you know, we came at the right time because between Thanksgiving and Christmas, the whole island basically shuts down. And so as far as our ability to just not have any traffic, you know, there's like three roads on the island. So to not have any traffic and to not, uh, you know, being, you know, encumbered by all these other things going on, there was just no one else there. And we were we had the whole place to ourselves as far as photographers were concerned. Oh, that'd be awesome. Now, yeah. does, now, does it shut down that much because a lot of the fishing industry are people from out of the area that are up there during the fishing seasons? Or uh, Yeah, absolutely. So it's between fishing seasons, and that's also where they have the Discovery Channel, the Deadliest Catch is based there, and they ramp up uh -huh. in January. So the fall fishing season ends, you know, October, November-ish, and then by the time Thanksgiving is around, no one's there. And then uh, the fellow we were talking to, he's an expedition leader for, um, oh, I forget the name of that. It's like Aleutian Expeditions now or something like that. I forget now. Um, anyway, he was saying that, yeah, right after Christmas and then especially right after the first of the new year, people will start coming in and they'll have in the neighborhood of that two to three week period, about 10,000 people coming back to the island. Holy cow. Yeah. And I was just like, on those little planes, because these planes, they see like 37 people. And he's like, no, we're talking, you know, the fishing boats, the extra flights that come in, you know, everything as far as bringing their people in. Uh, they'll just have a mass influx of people because the next fishing season basically ramps up and they're heading out to the Bering Sea to in the in the North Pacific to go catch more fish. Wow. You know, it's interesting because I met uh, an older gentleman just last week who's a photographer. His name was uh, Russ Gutschel, or Gutschel, and um, he's actually been to Alaska a few times, uh, drove up from, from down here in Georgia, Oh my. and <laughs> he's got a lot of his wildlife uh, video that he shot up there. He's got a video clip that was licensed by National Geographic and BBC and some other organizations where he had uh, a a bear that was fighting with two wolves over a moose carcass and wow, some really cool stuff. And he was telling me a bunch of stories about Alaska. And he's like, yeah, he says, he says, if you're going to go, 
your best bet's to drive up there. And he was giving me all this information. Well, make sure you go this way and not this way. And if you're going to go up there, you got to have four-wheel drive and make sure you carry at least two spare tires and five jerry cans of gas <laughs> because some of the places you go, you're going to be out in the middle of nowhere and the, the nearest gas might be an hour and a half drive away and all this yep. other stuff. And But he told me some really cool stories about being up there. And then I was telling him about you doing your trip to Unalaska. And he's like, yeah, that's way up north. <laughs> yeah, that is, well, it's the first major island on the Aleutian chain. And so it's remote, but because it's such a huge fishing port, there's still lots of traffic there. And it's also where the U.S. Coast Guard bases their boat, their fleet, whatever you want to call it. And so to, to uh, you know, patrol the entire Bering Sea, they're, they're based there in, in Alaska. And my next goal, if I can get back to the Aleutian chain, another roughly 1,000 miles out, or maybe it's a little more, a little less than that, um, there's the island of Adak. And Alaska Airlines themselves actually fly there uh, where – within Alaska, it's a partner airline. But for ADAC, it's even a smaller island. You get out there super duper far. It's like 2,000 miles from, or a little less, from uh, Anchorage. And that would be absolutely amazing. Uh, you're really close to Russia when you're out there, and it would just be so cool to be that far out in the ocean. So hopefully that can happen at some point in the future. But again, that's another thing where I need to be able to fly unencumbered which to alaska wouldn't be too bad but with that one i would probably want to hire a guide to take me on some of the trails they have because it's an even more rustic and robust you know kind of a situation and you just don't want to flirt with disaster when you're out there and something like that but that's the kind of thing you know it's either that or you know uh, summer previous, uh, I was in Hong Kong, and the previous summer of that, I was in Croatia for two weeks. And some of those areas are just drop dead gorgeous as well, and it's a lot more accessible. And um, you know, you don't have to rent a car either, <laughs> so it it can work really well uh, if you're uh, you know planning it out, and you and you you've got some good places that you know are on the map, and you don't have that overload of oh, I have to see this, I have to see that. I always try and pace myself and and not feel like I have to get all these things because it's not about checking off items on a list. It's about getting to the heart of whatever that location has to offer and trying to accentuate that and experience that and, and get good photographs of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't want to get there and have to, and you spend the whole time rushing, running around like a, a yeah. chicken with your head cut off trying to get shots in. <laughs> and I used to do that, and it was, you know, I, I felt like, you know, in my early days, if you will, I felt that that was something that, you know, those were the things that I got this and I got that, and I, you know, went over here and went over there, and, blah, 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 blah. and certainly as as I have transitioned to the more landscapish type and the, and I find a lot of my pieces are coming out black and white nowadays as well. Uh, it just has a different feel and a different aesthetic and a different purpose. And as I have that different purpose, I'm finding that the rushing style is definitely not it. You got to slow down. Exactly. And I mean, it, it's, it's better to go to three or four spots when you're going to a foreign country 
yeah. and get amazing images than to run around to 30 or 40 different spots and just rush everything. Yeah. And, then and it does depend on what your purpose of the journey is. You know, if your purpose of the journey is to, to simply tell the story of the overland journey, well, that's one thing. That's more of a photojournalistic kind of approach. But if your purpose is to find something of value and meaningful to you in that location, then, yeah, I think you got to slow down. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it reminds me, I don't know if you if you listen to the B&H Photography Podcast or not, but in one of their recent episodes in the last couple of weeks, they had a gentleman on there, and I can't think of his name, but he actually, with a, with a partner, walked the entire uh, Grand Canyon, walked mm -hmm. the whole thing, like 800 miles they walked. Wow. <laughs> And uh, he he was documenting and doing stills photography and a little bit of video and the whole thing was some project he was working on for National Geographic if I remember correctly but it was like man that is insane that would that yeah. that could be very amazing though too because you you get you know the whole breadth of what the canyon would have to offer and you know I gotta say as a as a podcaster with you know interest in two podcasts and then all this other stuff. I'm generally really bad about actually listening to podcasts because my commute to work has been like five minutes for the last 13 years. And with my move down to Oregon, it's going to go up to about seven and a half minutes. So I just don't have a commute where I can, you know, regularly listen to these things. It's when I work on a major project at the house uh, that I I'll put in the earbud and I'll listen. And so I, I tend to be more of a binge listener. So I think I'll look up the B&H one because I've been looking for a new photography one because I've pretty much caught up with all my photography ones. And then it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll take on another one. That'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> I get so jealous of those guys, though, because they get some big name people on their show. They've actually sure. had, uh, they actually had Jeff Bridges on there because he does photography. Oh, really? Yeah, he nice. was on their show. I think it was in 2019 during the summer. Maybe it was. But Very cool. I listen to theirs every week. I listen, of course, to your guys' podcasts every week. And I listen to one or two others besides my own, of course. Yeah. Uh, I get a kick out of, I get a kick out of Jared Poland, uh Frodo's photo out of Philadelphia. Yeah. Because, yeah. uh, you know, I grew up just a couple hours north of where he's where he's headquartered. So okay. I kind of sort of know him. We've never met, but we've communicated a lot via phone and emails and stuff like that. He's a really great guy. Nice. Yeah, and you guys are all cool on the Master Photography uh, Podcast Network. I've got yeah, we've got a good collection of people over there. It's been a while since I've been on because I've been selling the house and finishing up the quarter, and then I just dove headlong into my, my Latitude Photo School service that I'm bringing out here shortly, and it's just been like, I need to get back on that show again. But, no, we've got some great people with uh, Jeff and, and Brian and, and Erica and Connor are the partners there. And uh, it's just a lot of fun uh, on that podcast for sure. It's always a good conversation there. Yeah, I really, and the funny thing is my wife's not into photography really at all, other than she likes to look at, you know, beautiful images. She's not sure. into photography itself, but she loves to listen to the podcast with me in the car. Well, nice. Yeah. That's well, cool. right now my day job is real estate photography. So I drive, you know, all day, every day, but since that's been slow during the current situation uh, i'm looking to i'm interviewing wednesday to go back into it working from okay. home all the time on night shifts so i can still do the real estate stuff so well that's cool she gets excited like every thursday is when most of the shows that i listen to come out so she always gets excited going with me on those days to help out with floor plans and stuff because she likes to listen cool. to them with me cool yeah so she's really supportive about that 
Yeah, very nice. Yeah, my uh, my wife, she's into the YouTube with all of the, you know, hobby farms and off-grid living and all sorts of stuff like that. So that's her niche, and she's just learning so much. So when we do finally get our property, it's going to – it's a really mature property already, so there's not much we'll have to do. It's just we're going to emphasize it and make it our own. So it's, it's going to be really cool. Uh, but, yeah, listen, whenever we go somewhere – it's always as a family, it seems like. And so I always have the kids with me. And I'm, I don't know. They, I think they would be bored stiff listening to a photo podcast. So I, <laughs> maybe I should introduce them and, and I'll have a photographer too in the, in the family. There you go. It can never hurt. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you being your wife's into the, the hobby farming and all that stuff. That's why she's going to be the farm boss. Yes. It's a new place. She, I mean, I, I'm so, you know, otherwise, shall we say, distracted with, the, the teaching job and doing my podcasting and, and other stuff, traveling if I can. Uh, I, I have no time <laughs> to plan and, and I'll, I'll support all the work that she's doing. Absolutely. And I'll get out there and build whatever she needs me to build. But yeah, it's, otherwise it's all her. There's nothing wrong with that. At least it's something nope. you guys can do together. Oh, it'd be awesome. Yeah. And, you know, Looking it's forward something to that it. she's really into. So it'll keep her, you know, keep her happy and busy. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Well, and we 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 homeschool our four boys. So since we're moving to Oregon, we now have to also do our youngest. In Washington, the limit is eight years old. In Oregon, it's six years old. So she's going to be homeschooling uh, a high schooler, and then an eighth grader, and then the other one is in second grade, I think, and then a kindergartner. So oh, wow. she will already keep very busy. Yeah, that's she's for sure. Be super busy. Yeah. Hey, but at least you have your own farm hands. <laughs> Got my own farm hands, and we're also going to have a dedicated space for that to happen. So the clutter in the house, I can't blame it on homeschooling anymore. I'll blame it on something else. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So now, just out of curiosity, um, out of all the places you've traveled to for photography, which one do you think was your favorite and why? So... I think I'm going to split it to between a domestic and international destinations. And if, if you, if you allow me to do that, because oh, it's so difficult, it's so difficult. Um, I think I'm going to have to say for international, I'm going to have to say Croatia because I've been there twice. Well, I've been to Hong Kong twice too, but um, I've been there twice and I love to photograph water. And the waterfalls they have in Croatia and by extension, Bosnia Herzegovina, um, I don't think there's anything better on earth. I, I've not been to any, anything better anyway. And I know there's Iguazu Falls in South America and there's Victoria Falls in Africa. And those are amazing falls. But you don't have the same character that you have when you're at Plitvis Lakes National Park. And you don't have the same atmosphere when you're on the Adriatic coast, which other than Dubrovnik uh, had a very heavy Venetian influence because, you know, Venice was a, a big city state back in the day. And um, Dubrovnik was the city state of Ragusa. So they were competing with Venice. Uh, so there's lots of unique characteristics there as well. So the things that really interest me outside of photography are our history and the natural world anyway. 
And so there's just loads of historical interest. And then when you get to Plitvis Lakes National Park, and then there's also another one called Kirka National Park, and that's K-R-K-A. And then um, when you get over into Bosnia-Herzegovina and you get into like a place like Mostar and stuff like that, there's just absolute gorgeousness that you it's it's hard i think it's hard to take a bad picture number one but number two just the experience is so much more magnified and when you're on that trail and you're photographing waterfall after waterfall at least for someone like myself i can't it's almost impossible for me to get tired of shooting waterfalls and so that's the place to go and it's just amazing Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially if you get the, if you got the gear to do long exposures of waterfalls, daytime long exposures. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely, and the, ideally, you would be able to go. And they have three main hotels uh, of varying degrees of luxury. One of them, I think, is really posh, and the others are just kind of normal, you know, three or four star. And then they have a campground uh, right nearby that they also they even have some cabins that you could rent. So you're not really camping per se you're just in a, one of their cabins but <clears throat> what you've got there is um it's about two hours from zagreb and about two and a half hours from the biggest city on the coast which is split and then about two hours from another big city called zadar and so you have a lot of day trippers and so they'll show up at around 9 30 to 10 o'clock in the morning and they'll leave at about three to four in the afternoon and so if you can go there and you can be there when they open at seven in the morning, you're going to have a good three to four hours before the massive crowds hit and another three to four hours in the evening after they leave. And this would be in the summertime. I don't know what their winter hours are. So that's when you, that's what you really want to do as a photographer. And when I was there in 2017, that's what I had totally planned to do. I was going to spend like two and a half days there. And for that specific Part of the journey, I was actually going to rent a car as well and not rely on public transport so I could maximize my time. And um, so I flew into Zadar, uh, which is along the coast, central coast area, and spent a couple of days there, got over jet lag. And then we had the most horrendous rainstorm that ever did happen uh, it, for like 30 some years. And all the transportation was shut down and everything. So I became the following day, I became a day tripper when I was supposed to be there all day for the last two days, I became a day tripper and I still got some really good shots, but I was quite disappointed uh, in just the fact that I couldn't have gotten up there when I really wanted to and all that stuff. But I was like, you know what? I just need to make the best of it. You know, trying to keep positive, keep it going and uh, still got some really good images. It was just really crowded, um, but just gorgeous place. And then uh, domestically, um, right now I would have to say the Oregon coast because again, with water, I, I love the, the notion and the feeling of that water can convey. Um, but the rugged part portion of the Oregon coast, any season is, is perfect because I've been there in the wintertime when the storms are just rolling in, crashing in like mad, been there in the summertime, the springtime. I don't think I've been in there in the fall. That's when we start school. So I haven't really been there in the fall, <clears throat> but getting out there on the Oregon coast is just so varied and so rugged and so many wonderful different things that you just, 
it would take a lifetime to get tired of. So I, I like the Oregon coast as well. Yeah, I definitely don't blame you there. Uh, I, matter of fact, I've talked to a few other photographers that have done uh, photo trips up and down the Oregon coast as well as the California coast. And, they, and mm-hmm. they said, they're like, man, you can find so many beautiful places just along the West Coast that you can photograph and get amazing yeah. light. And, the you know, especially if you love to shoot the water, you know, you've got everything right there that you could possibly need to get some really fantastic images. Absolutely. My, my favorite place really is between Brookings, Oregon and uh, Bandon, the city of Bandon. Not to say that there isn't any good things, certainly north of Bandon. It's just um, in that region, Coos Bay, Bandon area, and then south of there, uh, you just have really good and more, I think, maybe even less, slightly, maybe less touristy uh, locations um, that might not be a really a, an honest assessment. That's just my my take on it. But the Samuel H. Boardman uh, National Scenic Corridor is right there, just north of Brookings as well, and that's just fantastically awesome. With all the little trails that you have that get down to the ocean or have overlooks over the ocean, and then the far north California coast. I went down there. Uh, let's see, when was that? I think that was earlier in 2017, June of 2017. Um, I, I took a couple of weeks and took two of my boys down there and, oh, that's just gorgeous too. Just, you know, the, whether it's the sequoias that you're looking at with the redwoods and then mixing that with the beach and, and other things like that. And this isn't your normal, you know, when I say beach, I don't want people who are unfamiliar with this. I don't want you to think you know, like a Caribbean style beach where you have this wide sweeping sand and it's just glorious. And you're there going to, you're just going to sit in your, you know, your little hammock or whatever and let the, the surf roll in. No, we're a very rugged, rocky coast and it's, it's an adventure for sure. When you're there, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Oh yeah. Yeah. I did know that, uh, you know, just from what I've seen other people capture out that way. And, and of course what you see is backdrops and movies and TV shows that, yeah. that a lot of the beach along the West coast, it's all rocky stuff, <laughs> cliffs and yeah. stuff like that. Well, when we got down into California with the, um, with the redwoods and we'd started driving in amongst those areas, we didn't get too far South. So just the, the far North area, very, very far North. My son was like, my oldest son, he was like, Oh, this looks like, you know, such and such scene from Star Wars, you know, where they're on the little motorbike style, whatever's racing through the forest. And I was like, no, son, that looks like this. <laughs> I was like, let's let's make sure we have the proper association here. This was here first. <laughs> Long <laughs> yeah, really. before Star Wars yep. ever envisioned anything uh like that and he's like oh okay dad well I, i'm into historical stuff as well um i lived for 10 years in the harrisburg gettysburg area in pennsylvania oh, very nice and i would go every sunday and walk a section of the gettysburg battlefield i didn't care about the bus tours or any of that stuff i would just go and walk a section at a time by myself and just uh spend time there because I was big into I'm big into history and and I would sometimes find some Civil War artifacts that hadn't been previously discovered and then just, oh my, nice. just give them to the Gettysburg Museum that was on site there. So I enjoyed doing stuff like that. It, and it could be a lot of fun. I mean, there's a lot of cool things and back in those days I wasn't even carrying a camera with me. Uh I've yeah. done, done photography off and on for 30 years, but 
most of the time when I went to Gettysburg, I was just there to, to soak in the, the feel of the history of the battlefield. And so I didn't bother with a camera, but man, you could really find some cool stuff. And I spent some time, I spent about nine months doing a cross training program with the, with the Navy SEALs in San Diego in the late eighties, early nineties. And I spent some time at the San Diego Naval Training Station. And I would love to go back there with my camera now. Just that is cool a beautiful things. area. Yeah, yes, I, I went to a conference in January uh, in San Diego and didn't get out much for shooting pictures. But what I did get, you know, and I've been there before, specifically for photography, uh, from Point Loma to downtown. Uh, so many good things there in San Diego as well. Yeah, beautiful area. Yeah, and I stayed on the part of the base where they actually filmed Top Gun, so that was kind of cool, nice. too. And then it, Very cool. And it was so funny because the way the base is laid out, the section I was in, in order to get to the chow hall, they had basically like a floating wooden sidewalk, is what I would call it, that actually crossed a stretch of the Pacific Ocean. Oh, wow. Where you actually had the water on both sides of you as you were crossing over to get to the part of the base where the chow hall was, so that was kind of well, cool, that's cool as well. That's cool, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. With, with you know when you say you have an interest in history and such like that you know I, I think it's to me it's important anyway and, and I would encourage people you know if, to to join your photo, your photography interests with your other interests because you know early on when I hadn't really focused on that I would go out and come back and I wouldn't have anything you know and I would get so disappointed and so upset and it's just like why am I even doing this kind of a thing. And I was just like, you know, hold on there, Brent. You know, it's just, it's important to enjoy whatever else it is you're doing. And so when you have that mind shift of expectation, then it's going to be a lot better experience for you. And then you're going to photograph something that you're already interested in anyway. It, you know, it's a win-win. And, and so anytime you can blend those interests, and that's why I, I love blending travel and photography is because my favorite author is Paul Thoreau. He's one of the most prolific travel writers ever. Now he also has a bunch of novels, which I don't really care for um, just because that's not my genre of, of interests uh, for reading, but his travel writing, I, I own all, but I think one of his books only because it's out of print and I haven't found it yet in a used bookstore. And it's just, it's it's just a wonderful experience to to read his you know his his experiences of traveling and then when I go traveling it's like you know if I didn't take a picture today it would stink but I still had a fantastic time it was amazing and so to blend those two is just a wonderful experience and that's what I do and why I love it. Yep, same with me and that that's how my whole forgotten pieces of Georgia project got started as I was just driving back roads in Georgia one weekend nice. trying to find something cool to shoot that was historical and i came into sparta georgia which at one time was the cotton capital of the world wow and that's how all that got started and and i found some really cool stuff just traveling back roads in georgia i found uh outside this small town called juliet georgia which i don't know if you're familiar with it or not some people a lot of people are but they don't realize they are because <laughs> even though it's a small town juliet is where they filmed fried green tomatoes okay only in the movie they called it whistle stop georgia <laughs> And then they filmed another movie there in 2016 or 17, but I can't remember what the name of it is because they have a big medallion painted on both ends of the concrete bridge that crosses the river in town about the other movie. Um, but I was driving back roads coming out of Juliet one weekend, and in the middle of nowhere, 
I mean, nothing but woods and the blacktop road I was on. I pulled off because I thought I saw something that caught my eye in the sunlight. And I got out and I hiked a ways back into the woods. And I found uh, an abandoned Civil War cemetery that hasn't been kept up for years. Oh, wow. Because the church that used to sit next to it burned down and it was never rebuilt. So I found some cool stuff there to photograph that most people didn't even remember was there. That would be absolutely amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I love that that's, kind of stuff. That's so cool. Yeah, whenever you can find anything rustic and old like that, absolutely. That's that's hitting all the buttons, and that's, that's just good stuff. Yep, for sure. So moving on with the travel and outdoor photography, what gear do you personally use? I, and, and I'm not so concerned with, you know, what manufacturer camera, but more like the lenses that you take with you, the kind of gear you take with you. And what would you recommend for somebody that's interested in getting into travel and outdoor photography? Well, yeah, interesting take here, interesting scenario here. Um, I, I currently use a Canon 5D Mark IV, and then I have a 1635, 2470, and the 70-300 lens. And all of those, the 1635 and 2470, those are the, the F4 models that have the image stabilization. Mm -hmm. And because that image stabilization, when I was making the purchasing decision, I decided that was more important to me than the F2.8. Yeah, because yeah, most the of the time, you I'm light. not at... You know, I'm not trying to shoot at f2.8. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I figured, you know, with having a little bit of image stabilization, and especially since I'm a travel photographer, I'm not always using my tripod. So I figured that would that would make sense. Um, I am not afraid, though, to let's say make a jump or open my mind to something else. Now, I tried several months ago. I tried to make a switch to Fuji because I figured the smaller format and the much smaller lenses, holy cow, they have some amazing lenses. I was really excited about that. And I just couldn't make the X-Trans sensor work for me because I decided I'm not yet ready to leave Lightroom. And if I'm ever ready to leave Lightroom and go to uh, Capture One, then I'll probably, you know, feel a little better about the um, about the switch to Fuji, but even there was still some problems with some of the subjects I was photographing. When I was on the Oregon coast, it just did not render sand at all the way it should. It looked yeah. like it was uh, snow on your old CRT television that was hooked up to the wrong channel kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I remember you talking about that. Yeah, and I've got a blog post on my website if you want to see examples. It was just... I, I had the hardest time accepting the fact that when I'm out there shooting, am I going to be having second guesses? Is my equipment going to keep me from, you know, realizing my, my, my ideas here? And so I would recommend the Fuji for anyone that doesn't want to shoot sand. <laughs> and I would say details really of sand because I was pretty close um, and I was wanting the granules of sand to come out. But the Fuji is such an amazing system and I love their lenses. I love everything else they're doing. It's just the X-Trans, especially in Lightroom, wasn't working for me. And there were a few other areas uh, too with um, brightly lit backgrounds or silhouetted uh you know tree branches and the like it didn't handle those transitions very well either along the edges um but for people shooting oh my goodness the fuji is one of the best and for flowers you, you it's hard to beat the the built-in color 
that you get with the Fuji system. And I think you have the GFX Fuji, don't you? Yeah, I've got the GFX 50R. Now, being it doesn't have the X-Trans processor or, or sensor, I don't have issues with right. you know weird um, irregularities in my images in Lightroom, but yeah. I still prefer to process my GFX images in Capture One, which I have okay. as well. Nice. Yeah, that, and that's good to know because as I move forward with my decisions on what I'm going to do with my camera gear, I'm trying to think, okay, do I want to stick with Canon? Because in a couple of days, I don't know when this episode releases, but on Thursday uh, from now, uh, Canon is announcing officially the, the R5. And I'm very interested in that camera. You know, I'm not, I don't, I can't say right now, obviously I don't see any results, but I'm extremely interested in that camera. And Maybe I'll stick with Canon. Maybe that'll be a reason for me to stick with Canon. Maybe I'll want to go ahead and, and separate out what I'm carrying depending on what the shoot is because I would love a GFX camera for my landscape work and a Fuji X system for my travel work. That would just be amazing. But to have that single one-off camera that does everything that's still also an amazing idea too because well you save money <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> and you save on your entire kit overall um you know because when i'm going let's say to to croatia at let you know and, I, and if i were to not take both types of cameras if i were to have a fuji system there were just i don't know there would still be that kind of i think i would have to get over this mental block and say you know where you should never let the equipment dictate or you know and you know provide a, a a road bump for you in your creative process but if i were to split that idea and, and get the gfx for landscapes and and the fuji x for for travel i can't help but think there might be something like that if i were to leave one of them at home where i'd be like oh i wish i had the other one <laughs> yeah. and, and i don't want to get into that either so that's where i might just end up staying with a full frame deal well mirrorless uh, it will be my next camera i don't know which one it'll be but i'm really looking it'll likely most likely be a full frame mirrorless um with with uh said on canon too i really love what leica has done with their s2 holy cow that thing is amazing it's also amazingly expensive yeah, so exactly i don't see myself really going that route but there's there's good things that Leica is doing and Sigma is doing uh, within and Panasonic within that L mount system, but in short, I think I'm going to be going full frame uh, mirrorless from here on out, and it, it, whenever I buy my next camera, and then I'm also very intrigued and I, I've very rarely shot with prime lenses, and I would not mind making a switch to some prime lenses. And I saw an article on one of the photography websites where they were saying there was a, a, a desire or whatever they said for these camera manufacturers to make slower pro quality prime lenses. And I was like, yes, <laughs> sign me up because you know, everyone Sigma and everyone else, they're making these like F 1.4 F 1.8, whatever, you know, these beautiful primes, but they're so stinking heavy because there are these f12 f14 or whatever and it's just like i don't really need that just give me a nice f4 a nice f28 you don't need to go f2 and, and things like that 
because uh, it just adds to the weight and I don't want that weight when I'm traveling about. And even when I'm just car shooting, I really don't want that weight anyway. Uh, so anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand completely. As a matter of fact, um, one of the photographers, I, I don't religiously follow his work, but I know a lot of his work. He, do, he loves to do travel photography as well, and that's David Hobby. Uh, he's known as the strobist. Yeah. Because he's one of the best guys in the world at using speed lights for photography. And uh, when he uh, travels, he was using, last I knew, he was using one of the Fuji, uh, I want to say it was like an X100 or something like that. And sure. the only lens he ever had on it was a 23 millimeter for all his travel stuff. And that's all yeah. he was carrying. He was going to Hong Kong and all over the place and just carrying that one camera. Yeah. Um, Ibarinex Pirello also has that same line of camera. And that's a fixed lens camera, so you don't have a choice. Oh, yeah, that's right. On, on that one. And so that, you know, if I were to go GFX, I could see myself going with something like that to where then it's not really a choice as it relates to, you know, do I wish, do I bring it or not? Yeah, I'll just bring it anyway. And, you know, that would be kind of like the vlogging camera and, you know, the shooting from the hip style camera when you're changing buses, changing trains, whatever the case is, and you don't want to get out the big camera, that's when you get out the little camera like that. Yeah. Uh, right now I use a Sony A6400 for that type of stuff. And so I'm already carrying you know, two bodies when I go with me. So to carry another body, you know, to, to go from a 5D Mark IV to the GFX 50R, it's basically the same weight and same size. So I really wouldn't be lugging myself down, you know, pulling myself down too much more to, to go with something like that. But also to streamline it, that's what I really want to do overall is to try and streamline my approach. And so that's where maybe staying with Canon makes sense for me, but we'll wait until Thursday and see what the R5 and R6 actually looks like and what the official announcement says. Yeah, exactly. Now, I did see, I think it was last night, somebody posted in one of the photography, one of the Canon EOS R groups I'm in, uh, somehow he got hold of a screenshot of what the video modes are going to be in the R5, and he posted it to prove to everybody that Unlike their speculation, Canon didn't do anything to, to cripple the 8K video. In other words, you know, yeah, it's 8K, right. but you can only shoot for five seconds at a time. <laughs> um, now, of course, being Canon hasn't made their official announcement until Thursday of this week, the same day this episode will come out. Uh, we don't have concrete information on the pricing, but everything I have heard from my sources says the R5 is going to be between $34.99 and maybe $36.99, somewhere around there. Um, well, and that's not terrible. Yeah, which will be great if it is, because I know Jeff's been wanting to get a new body, Jeff Harmon, and yeah. uh, he's really hoping that the R5 will be in, the, in that price range, so it's a little more practical for him, mm -hmm. and he can upgrade to something better, which would be really cool. If they release an 8K shooter at that price point, it's it's going to fly off the shelves for sure. Oh, yeah. And, and the whole reason why I believe that Canon is doing it this way and they're not crippling anything, there's no crazy crop in this one like the EOS R has. Mm -hmm. yeah. it, one of the big things they explained, because they were asked about it by several photography media outlets, different Canon executives were asked about it. And they're like, well, how are you doing 8K video in the R5? without any overheating problems because the newer Sony's they've actually added vents to the camera so that it can breathe more and doesn't get as hot shooting 4k. 
Yeah. And he explained, the one guy explained, well, what we did is we carefully analyzed our design and we moved all of the major components that have to do with shooting the 8K video as far apart from each other as we could in the housing so that it better dissipates heat. Because I remember when the, when the first Sony full frame did 4K video, uh, if you're familiar with them, Tony and Chelsea Northrop. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember Tony talking about they had the first Sony that did 4K, and he's like, "Yeah, it was 4K, but it was theoretical." Because <laughs> he said, <laughs> "He said we were on a vacation in Florida, and I'm walking on the beach at nine o'clock in the morning, and I powered the camera on to shoot some 4K video, and by the time it booted up, it was already saying it was too hot to shoot with, and it shut, oh my goodness, and it shut back down on him." Wow, and and and, yeah. and I explain to people all the time the funny thing that people don't seem to realize is Canon in many ways is a lot like Apple. Their reputation is everything. Sure. So they are not going to put a camera in the hands of consumers. That's going to have overheating issues and stuff like that. They're just not going to do it. Yeah. Because they're an old school Japanese company and their reputation is everything to them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. And you know, that might, you know, be your, you know, you start to understand why they've done what they've done and a lot of people get after them and say oh you know you're you're really lagging behind and and whatnot what's gonna be interesting is all these people that have stayed with canon i imagine there's kind of a silent majority still oh yeah (laughs) but all these people that have stayed with canon once this gets released you know these these numbers are going to flop because for a little time sony has had the number two or number one slot in overall sales or what have you I, I expect this to be a major, major point where people are going to jump finally from their DSLRs, because like for myself with the with the five D four, yeah, the R the R is a little bit lighter, a little bit smaller, but it's not that significantly different of a camera. So unless you really want that format and whatnot, there's no reason to really jump yet, and. Um, Sure, there's other other little things about it too but, that are wonderful. But now that we have a huge major thing with all those other little wonderful things in, in addition to it, that'll just be uh, a major push for people, I think, to go ahead and jump on it. One thing I really hope they do, which I expect them to not to do, as a travel photographer, I love the GPS in that 5D4. Oh, yeah. I, I geotag all my images, super easy right in camera. And if you have it set right, it does not drain the battery hardly at all. And it is just wonderful because I no longer have to take any notes of where I was when I shot something. <laughs> it's all right there in the metadata and Lightroom has a light module, the map module, excuse me. And oh my goodness, it's beautiful. I love it. I just used it on my last episode where I was talking about different areas in the Palouse that I was shooting. And, you know, I've got pinpoint right where I was, right on that road. This is exactly where I was. And it's so nice to be able to reference that data. If they include the GPS and the R5, um, probably I would say it's a guaranteed happening for me because that to me is important. And then it would also mean that I get all the extra bennies from the R5 and the extra bennies of sticking with Canon. So it'll just make a lot of sense for me for that. But if they don't put a GPS unit in there. Yeah, it's small or insignificant to other people, but you know, it's kind of a thing. Why don't I consider Panasonic or why don't I consider Sony? It would make sense to at least put those in the running 
and just see if that would make sense for me. Exactly. Well, every just to let you know, everything I'm hearing right now is that the R5 will definitely have GPS. The R6 maybe not, but the R5 <laughs> R5 is supposed to have GPS as well as Bluetooth 5.0. Nice. Which I, I love know it. that's a big thing for Jeff uh, is the faster Wi-Fi and Bluetooth because he uses one of his iPads to. Yep you know, show his photos when he's doing senior portraits and stuff like that. He shows them to mom on the iPad as he's shooting. Yeah. And he said the biggest sticking point right now with his ADD is the Wi-Fi is so slow. So sending the file over to the iPad takes a little bit. Mm -hmm. But the R5 is supposed to have gigabyte Wi-Fi. So awesome. The and the other thing, AC. Yep. And the other thing with that, I've got the Sony a6400 with the extra, I forget exactly which Bluetooth it has, but um, connecting to that camera is stupid easy. And connecting to my Canon camera right now is not. Yeah. So yep. with the additional Bluetooth and Wi-Fi capabilities, I would imagine they're going to also, you know, increase the, the capabilities of connection and just say, it's so easy to connect now because it shouldn't be difficult to connect to the camera from your phone or your tablet. And Sony definitely has it down pat, at least for my 5D4. That's, you know, it's a four-year-old camera now, um, but it's a little more difficult. And I imagine with the 80D that Jeff is having there too, it's, it's just not as smooth as probably the Sony system is. And so if they can increase that, yeah, it's going to be awesome. Yeah, that would be fantastic. And it's funny that you mentioned GPS because I went to the GFX um, for my landscapes and especially my forgotten pieces of Georgia because I, I wanted the higher details in the images. Sure. But that's the one thing that really ticks me off is Fuji does not put GPS in any of their cameras. At least I don't think so. Maybe they do no. in the APS-C bodies, but I don't think no, so. No, they don't. And the worst part is they don't even give you an option to add one into the hot shoe mount like nope. everybody else does. <laughs> there is nothing in the communications menu at all that supports GPS. And their answer to everything is, oh, just keep it paired with your smartphone. Well, I know. I don't I, want it paired with my smartphone because, number one, it runs both devices' batteries down faster. A lot, and yes. When, and when you have it paired with your smartphone, you have to take all of your pictures using the smartphone. And the Fuji app is really slow and clunky at taking pictures. Oh, that yeah. See, that would suck. I, I, I remember talking. I had um, a Fuji rep. Well, not a rep, but a, a Fuji photographer. He's an ambassador for Fuji on my show. And I was trying to get the, the skinny on, you know, as I was going through my struggles with Fuji and, and just trying to, you know, literally overcome these struggles. How can I, you know, make this better? How can I address this? And that's what, yeah, basically what he told me to do. And I was just like, well, yeah, that could work. I'm just not sure I really want to do that for the exactly the, for the reasons that you mentioned with my phone battery already goes down too fast <laughs> and I don't want to keep having to make that, I don't know, I just see that getting in the way of my experience of photography and with it built in, it doesn't get in the way and it's just so convenient. It's just right there and I always have it on and it's, it's, it's just nice to have it so convenient. Yeah, exactly. I mean, with now my EOS R5 and my RP, they don't have GPS either, but I already from previous years had the Canon GPS unit that snaps into the hot shoe. Ah, nice. So it's got its own battery. You don't have to worry about running the camera battery down or any of that hassle. And I find myself when I shoot my forgotten piece of Georgia, I 
generally do stills as well as video clips for YouTube videos at the same time. So what I do is I just basically take three bodies with me now. I shoot my video with the, with the RP. I get my geotagging with the EOS R with the GPS unit on top. And then I take my printed version of the photos that are going to go into the books with the GFX 50R. <laughs> and then of course I have to sync the metadata, you know, the GPS data to the, yep. to the Fuji raw files. Uh, there's no, and it's really silly because that's something else to me that's lacking in Capture One. I love their software and I've had it for yeah. a number of years. They also do not give you a way in their software to share GPS location data from one raw file to another. So I can't do it. I have to put the raw files in Lightroom first Mm. copy over the GPS metadata, and then I can do my editing in Capture One afterwards because Capture One does not allow you to replicate or sync GPS metadata from one file to a bunch of others. You can't do it like you can in Lightroom. What a pain. Yeah, and I, can't, <laughs> I can't believe they never thought to put that in their software. Yeah. Because they're really on the ball with a lot of their other, you know, a lot of the other modules and processes in their photo editing software are just phenomenal. And when I yeah when I first opened that software up, I was just like the the color management and the way that they deal with color is amazing. I love it. Oh, it is. Yeah. And then it was just like these other things. So I was like, well, you know, it's I'll, I'll I'm just so used to Lightroom. I'll go ahead and stick with Lightroom still, you know. And so I'm okay with that. But that that whole idea of you know switching over is still intriguing to me. But now that you say we don't even have the opportunity to see that, I don't know. Because <laughs> I'd be okay with just copying, if it would show it to me in a text field, I'll copy it and dump it into Google Maps. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that that's what I do now if I need a, a Google Map of it, rather than the, the standard map that it gives me, which is Google generated. But um, if I need my own shareable, you know, link that I can do, I'll just plug in those those data, those data points into Google Maps, and then it gives me a share that I can do, and it's perfect. Yep, yeah, and it, I just never understood why Capture One will support GPS tagging if your camera already has the information in your EXIF data, but yeah. it will it will not let you sync it to other files within Capture One. I do, okay, I do not understand that at all. Mm, and, my, and my big thing is, I would love to go to Capture One for everything because I I know it's not a lot, but it just ticks me off paying. Adobe every month for the photography <laughs> plan. And I don't use Photoshop hardly at all, so I wouldn't really miss that. Yeah. Um, but there's just some things that Lightroom can do that Capture One still does not have down yet that they should have by now. Well, that's definitely one of the benefits of being a teacher. I just get it for the job. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I teach this stuff too. So, yep. uh, and then, you know, I'm, I'm just able to use it for this work as well. So, uh, yeah, that, that is a benefit, and that's another part of the process. You know, if I were to ever, uh, you know, branch out on my own, would I still continue using Lightroom and Photoshop at $10 a month and all the other Adobe softwares that I use as well at $50 a month then? Yeah. Or would I find, you know, these different solutions that are a lot cheaper? And I'm starting to think I might like some things that are cheaper <laughs> because <laughs> – 50 bucks a month is pretty steep. Yeah, it's really steep. Yep. And that's to get all the Creative Cloud apps, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. 10 bucks for the photography plan, but 50 if you want just one other thing, you know. And I use yep. InDesign an awful lot, um, Illustrator for my logo development and stuff like that. 
and even some of my um, Facebook graphics I'll use Illustrator over Photoshop for. Um, and then Affinity Photo, they also have Affinity Designer, I think it's called, yep. and then they have another one for Illustrator. And um, 50 bucks a piece, and you own it for good. So yep, exactly. <laughs> there's there's a good thing there going on. Yep. I think I got the three of them actually through the Mac App Store when they were having some sort of bundle deal, and I paid like oh, nice. 60 bucks to get all three of them. Ooh, nice. Yeah, that was really nice, and they're, you know, permanent. Yep, don't have to worry about uh, renewing a license every month or every year, which that just yeah. drives me up the wall. I mean, I know it's how the companies are, are making money, but I hate paying it every month. It drives uh, me here crazy. I hear you. And I, when I was in Alaska, too, this is what really ticked me off. I was in Alaska, and that's when the computer decided, I need to reestablish my licensing with Adobe. Oh, geez. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Of all times to do it when I'm out in the middle of nowhere. Because <laughs> we were on the very fringe of town, and there was no internet at our Airbnb. And I and I had asked the people who were hosting us, and she was like, well, it's $25 uh, a gig. Oh, and wow. I was just like, ouch. <laughs> so... So she's like, what most people do is they get a SIM card for their phones and then they have it, you know, wherever they are. Well, okay, that's what I did. But then we were on the very fringes of town. It's, you know, if you held the phone at the right angle and you smiled right, you might get a strong enough signal. So what I ended up doing was something like that. And then I connected my computer to that and it finally recognized and I could use my software again. But I was just like, this is the reason why it's stupid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, and I don't understand the absolute randomness on when yeah. Adobe wants to suddenly talk to the licensing server again, because it's done that to me. I mean, yeah. you know, I'll be out for a whole weekend working on my Forgotten Pieces of Georgia, and I'll be staying in a little bed and breakfast or a motel out in the middle of nowhere in a, in a remote part of Georgia, fire up my MacBook Pro, and all of a sudden it wants to talk to the licensing server out of the blue. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Really? Yep. And in ours, uh, I was trying to do some reading on that, like how often it does that. And I think if you're on the monthly where you pay every single month, then it tries to do it every month, at least once a month, uh, probably more frequently. But if you're, if you prepay, then it goes a longer period. And I think on our academic thing that we have, it's supposed to go like six months. Oh, okay. So I was like, you know, my time here away from everything this had to be the six month. <laughs> it was just, yeah. you hit the six month window while you're out of town. That's terrible. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. That would definitely not be fun. That, that would make you pull your hair out. Of, well, if I had hair, I'm, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm almost gone too. So, <laughs> well, I purposely shaved mine all off cause it's just too hot in Georgia. That makes uh, sense. Yeah. Yeah. My wife insists that I grow it back in, in the winter time. Cause she likes me having hair. I'm like, baby, there's not much left there. <laughs> but as soon as it starts getting warm, she knows it's getting peeled off and it's staying off until Christmas yep. gets here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. It's been absolutely great having you on the show uh, this week, Brent. I'm trying to think if I had a, I was thinking I had one more question I wanted to ask you about related to travel and outdoor. Oh, yeah, besides your, your your camera gear, what other gear do you recommend for being out there traveling? Because oh, a lot yeah. of times with the kind of stuff you do, you're probably doing at least a certain amount of hiking and, and stuff like that to try to make their lives easier, somebody that wants to get into this. Absolutely. There's there's an arrangement of things, certainly, that you can be looking for, uh, just depending on the, the type of 
work that you're going to be doing. One thing that I think the first thing that I certainly look at is certainly the bag that I'm carrying my stuff in. And, and besides my camera gear, the, just my other stuff too. Um, in general, if I'm going to be more or less, you know, hoteling it or anything like that, certainly I'll, I'll use like a roller bag and stuff like that. It's not a big deal. But I do have a couple of, you know, hiking backpacks that I can throw a, a change of clothes into. And I just find that to be a little more convenient. Um, when it comes to my camera gear, I'm actually a fan of think tank photo stuff. Uh, they, there are certainly others out there that have a, a great product, but as far as um, when it comes to backpacks, I, I still like when it comes to my shoulder bag, I like my Tenba DNA 13 is the one I use most. But when it comes to backpacks, I like the, the think tank photo and the, um, what is the, I'm, I, the urban access 15 is probably my favorite bag of theirs. It's the most versatile as far as how you can swap things around and the, the upper component, the upper compartment, you can expand that and take up some of your camera gear compartment space. So if I ever go like, for instance, if I ever go back to Croatia and if I can switch, let's say to a Fuji system, I would probably just use that one pack and only have that one pack. It would be for my clothes and for my camera gear. And I would just try and go ultra light. Um, if you're looking to shoot in, uh, you know, like in the waterfalls area and you want to get in the water itself, especially if you're looking for some, uh, you know, if it's going to be really cold water, like it often is around here anyway. Uh, I really like my, I have some neoprene uh, water socks that work really well for getting in, getting wet, but keeping the feet mostly warm, <laughs> warmer than if they were in the, in the frozen water. There's one time I was up North, almost to the Canada border with a friend here in, in Washington. And we were heading out to get this frozen waterfall. And I was along the water along the Creek, which is still flowing. And I had stepped off onto this little ice shelf. And I mean, you know, it was like hovering two inches above the water and the water, it was all of three inches deep. So it's not a big deal, but it broke. <laughs> And I fell in. Oh, you and got I wet just, and cold. <laughs> I just went down. I mean, I was laying down in the water. Oh. And so I was like, oops. And my friend, he's looking back at me. Are you all right? And I was like, yeah, just just my pride is hurt. So I was like, just shrugged my shoulders like, okay. And I did not have my water socks with me. And well, I probably had them with me. They were in the car. <laughs> and... um so I was just like, well, I'm wet now, so I might as well just walk in the water. So I walked in the water, and my toes just froze, and still got some interesting images. And it was worse, though, when I got out of the water, and I was walking on the snow-covered path. Oh, my goodness, that's when it really got cold. But if I had had water socks on, um, it would have been a lot better, and my feet would not have nearly gotten frostbitten. Yeah, I can imagine. Um I've got a couple of different backpacks that I like. I haven't gotten any of the think tank, but I've been looking at, I'm thinking about looking at that one that you talk about that you use because it sounds like a really good one. But then the other interesting thing I've been debating on myself, and maybe this is my army days, 
is I noticed uh, I was looking randomly at backpacks last night on Amazon and I can actually get a military rucksack on there. And I'm like, oh, that might be good for both photography mm -hmm. and clothes. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they're there waterproof was, too. Yeah, there was one I just came across. They're made, oh shoot, no, I can't remember where they're made. They're made in Montana somewhere, I think. And I was just like, oh, this looks amazing. And I'm like, I should contact the company because there's one of them that was really close to what I would want in a, in a backpack for, for a camera pack, but they just need to put a little, you know, camera insert in there. So like, I should contact them and say, Hey, let's design a pack together. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Cause it was so nice. Uh, the back of the, of the pack had a Y shaped ordeal. So a zipper down the middle. And then as it goes up towards the top, from the middle to the top sections towards your shoulder areas, that zipper each way that way. And so it just opens up. Everything is just there for you. And I really liked that idea, I thought. And it's like, you know, unless I have it in my hands, I'm not going to really know. But I could see a camera insert going there. And then on each wing of each side, left and right, you had little pockets and everything to hold all your gear and such like that. And then on the upper one that folds up you know that was another little compartment for stuff and it's like i really like that style because the thing about a lot of these packs whether it's the urban access 15 or the other one i have is the um uh the ultralight 26 um you know those are designed to supposed to be able to leave it on your your body and you rotate it around and the urban access 15 is nice because it has side access and so that works pretty well but the other one you're supposed to rotate it around leave the um leave the belt attached and you rotate it around and then it leans forward well the problem with that it really presses on your bladder <laughs> and it's just like that's so uncomfortable so i never do that with that bag it's a wonderful bag it's really strong really takes care of the gear but i just take it off it's just easier for me to take it off and not worry about pressing on my bladder basically so um with a, with a, so since I take it off anyway, you know, a, a camera, a, a bag like this where it's more military style seems to make a lot of sense to me to how it opens. And I, and I was like, yeah, that, that would be pretty sweet. And since it also opens in the back instead of, you know, instead of where your back goes, where the harness is, you have a much more customized harness and that can be a lot more comfortable to carry. Exactly. Uh, so that, that's the other thing that you get. Um, when I went to Hong Kong, I used an REI backpack. Um Trail 40, I think, is the, the model. And then I just put a camera insert in it because I wanted something that I could hike a lot while I was staying, you know, in small hotel rooms and the like. I knew I was going to be on on the street, on the sidewalk, wherever, just all the time. And so I wanted something that I knew would be really comfortable. And that was an amazing pack for doing that. And it had a really good harness. And so I, I will use that one still as well. Uh, there's a couple of other little doodads. You know, I always carry a knife with me if, if I can. Um, you never know when you're going to need a knife. <clears throat> and then um, there's a few little other just little trinkets, whether it's the um, – I always have the um, tiny little tripod. Uh, it's – what is that thing? It's a little platform. For some reason, I can't think of the name right now, but um, – it's this little platform that's just a flat piece of aluminum and you can attach it anywhere. And I've only used it a couple of times, but it's really nice to have it. It's super lightweight. And uh, so it's a nice little piece to have as well. And I have then a tiny little ball head that goes along with it that 
I ripped off of some other tripod that broke and it's like that'll work you know for temporary use little small uses that'll work perfectly so it's really good now are you talking about the the platypods yes the platypod yeah i've got the platypod <laughs> max i love that thing yeah it's pretty cool i really like it and you know again it's not something i use all the time but it's one of those things it's just good to have because you can get so low you can use a strap and strap it to anything and it's just really nice to to be able to do that and so it's it's a good thing to have uh so i like the platypod for sure yeah now do you have the the smaller one or do you have the because the thing i love is i bought the max and i can actually put my manfrotto uh bhq2 ball head on that sucker because it's a big enough plate it'll hold the weight of that big a ball head so i think it's the max that i have i don't have my camera I do have my camera bag here. So, um, yeah, I think it's the max that I have, but the, the ball head that I currently use on it, like I said, is just something I ripped off of a really small tripod and mm -hmm. I could totally put any other, any other, um, ball head on it, I'm sure, but I'm opening it up now and we will see in two seconds. Ah, oh, it's the ultra. It's not the max. Okay. Yeah. You got the same one Jeff has then. Yeah. Yep. Now, the thing I'm intrigued by is, and I'm sure you've probably already heard this, is Platypod is actually getting ready later this year to release their own ball head that's a really unique design. It looks like it's going to be a really versatile and yet heavy-duty ball head. But yeah, it's I, I saw like that. It's $400, though. Yeah, they call it, I think, the Platy Ball. And yep. I saw that, um, boy, when did they, they announced it a little while ago. And, um, and I, I just remember thinking that's interesting because you have these little push button thingies that you do in order to set it, uh, you know, to, to lock it into position or whatever. And it definitely looks interesting. And they have another one that has, I think a built-in level. And a part of me says that would be kind of nice to have too. And another part of me says, do I really need it? Cause I got a level on my camera. <laughs> so not that concerned about that part. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I think the Platyball is still still on Kickstarter. And if, okay. I, if I remember it, the last time I looked at it, they said they're not expecting to start shipping them until the end of December of this year. Yeah, they, on their website I'm looking at now, they say join the wait list for. And so, yeah, they're definitely not shipping yet, but it is something that they're trying to, trying to get it marketed and sold, pre-sold, it sounds like, if they're on Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The one thing I haven't gotten yet for my Platypod Max that I think I'm going to pick up at some point is the little flexible arms you can attach to it that you can put like the little light, uh, Lytra torches on or yeah. the, uh, what's the, Loom Cube lights on. Yeah. Uh, for like, if you want to do like macro photography or something like that. Yeah, that would be definitely a good thing. Something like that. Another attachment actually, that since you asked me about what kind of gear do I have, uh, take with me sometimes. Um, there's an item called a plant clamp. And it's uh, just an articulating arm that has a clamp that attaches to the tripod leg. And then I can have another clamp on the other side where I can take a flower or leaf or whatever and position it exactly where I want it. And so I can get compositions a little more, you know, configured. And so that's a nice little thing to have, too. Uh, I don't always have that in my bag, but, you know, when I know I'm going to be doing something sort of macro-ish, it's, it's definitely in my bag and I'm using it because it helps me solidify it from the wind, but also position it wherever I want to position it. 
Yeah, which is always convenient. <laughs> yeah, especially sure. when you're trying to do macro photography of plants or flowers. And then, of course, the minute you get everything the way you want it and you're ready to snap the shot, then a breeze comes along and starts moving. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Every time it never fails. Yep. Now, I imagine probably for your kind of photography, you also carry, I'm assuming, some sort of uh, battery pack for recharging stuff out in the field. Actually, not so much. Now, there is one device I do have. Um, this is that, that, that can do that. Uh, this is the uh, DJI Boss, I think they call it. Also, it's manufactured by Lacey. And it's an external hard drive that allows you, you can put, uh, put in your SD card and then you just hit a button and it'll copy it off. And it's really fast, actually. I was surprised at how fast it would copy off a full card. Uh, this has enough juice in it that I can plug in my cell phone or I could plug in uh, a battery charger for the Canon and I could charge some batteries that way. Uh, I don't usually carry that actually with me because it's two terabytes and it's you know, that it has its own battery. It's kind of heavy. So it would usually stay, let's say, in the hotel room or the campsite or whatever. Um, but usually I, I will have a battery charger that either plugs into the car or I just have a bunch of uh, international plugs and then I'll just charge them up at night when I'm in the room because as yet I'm not doing a whole lot of backpacking photography. And if I can ever get to the point where I'm doing multi nights out on the trail, that's where I would definitely feel the need to have something to charge my batteries because it would probably be lighter to have a battery charger than to take a whole bunch of batteries with me. Yeah, absolutely. I actually bought one last year, um, and it's currently unavailable on Amazon, so they must be selling like crazy. Uh, it's by a company called R. Laron, and it's a 24,000 milliamp hour battery bank. Holy cow. Bank. <laughs> it has three USB ports, and it has a wireless charging port on the top to charge your smartphone. Nice. And I love that thing because I can take it out and that thing will keep battery. It'll charge batteries all day long out in the field before it's packed. gets even close to, to running low on juice. It's a really amazing uh, power bank to carry out in the field. And then nice. I, the other thing I have, although I haven't been doing as much hiking since I got in the car accident in 2015 and my back got messed up pretty bad, is I also have the RAV Power. It's a three-panel fold-out uh, solar charging system with USB ports. And the nice thing about that is it comes with the little carabiner so you can clip it on your backpack. So as you're hiking, you can have that facing the sun and you can have your cords plugged in and you can have your phone in your pocket, in your backpack or on your belt or whatever, and it'll keep it charged up or even charge your camera batteries while you're out hiking. Nice. Yeah. I'm glad he actually mentioned that because, um, I wanted to mention something about, a solar charger. That's not something I have yet, but for this summer, it didn't happen, but I had applied for an artist in residency with the national park system. And actually it was going to be a different entity, but anyway, the same idea uh, up in Alaska. And that's where we were going to be based out of, um, off of that ADAC Island. And then uh, it would have been on a research vessel going further out, even further to this really small Island where just the birds live and that's the only thing that's there if i had gotten that uh artist in residency to be a photographer there on on site 
then I totally would have gotten absolutely hundred percent would have gotten the solar charger because you just, you can't spend a couple of weeks out there without something like a solar charger and goal zero is the one I was looking at, but you know, the RAV power is certainly they have a lot. It looks like they have some good things too. So, um, not something I'm using now, but definitely on my, my radar if I get something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause you don't want to be out there for, like you said, a week or two weeks and have absolutely no way to charge your stuff. Absolutely. Cause they're, they're going to go dead and you're just like, now what do I do? Yep. Well, I, re- <laughs> I remember the gentleman that I was telling you about at the top of the show, uh, that, that hiked the grand Canyon. Yeah. And he was talking about that and he was, sh- he was shooting with a Sony. I think he had the a seven R four and he had a couple of batteries with him and he even had a, a power bank and a, and a solar charging system. But he said he still had a really hard time even keeping one battery fully charged Hmm. Uh, let alone being able to have all three of them fresh each morning to shoot with all day. Right. Yeah. And that's where the goal zero solution and now these RAV powers, I see some of them have their own batteries in as well. Um, But the goal zero solution, you can charge a bigger battery and then plug those in, you know, plug it into that battery overnight but then you just leave the panel there at your base camp and let it charge that battery while you're out shooting. But then you can, you know, plug them in at night and get them juiced up and then start all over again the next day. Yeah. I've been thinking about getting one of the newer RAV powers that has the battery built into it. Cause it would be absolutely handy. Yeah, that sure. is definitely true. All right, Brent. Well, I guess we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode. We're at just about an hour and 40 minutes, which, like I told you before, is no big deal. My listeners seem to love long episodes. So, Yeah, it's cool. It's good. It's um, good to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, before we go, I wanted to give you the opportunity to go ahead and plug anything that you want to plug, your, your podcast, your website, your Latitude Photography School, the Create Photography Retreat, anything like that. You're free to plug on here. Well, thank you very much. Yes, the you, you pretty much covered it all. Uh, you can find me mostly if you just search my name uh, in the various areas, except Twitter. I don't hardly ever do Twitter. I do have an account there, but you know it's been years since I've posted. But um, Instagram, Brent Bergherm, you can find me there, and YouTube, Brent Bergen Photography, and then um, with the website and the the podcasts, I'm a member of the group for master photography podcast so if you haven't listened over there give it a listen and it's a it's a nice round table discussion of pretty much all things photography it rotates uh in the topic pretty well my specific interest of course is travel outdoor and that's what latitude photography podcast is about so i've had um two episodes already recently where I had Rick Salmon come on the show and he's actually, I'm going to talk with him again tomorrow. By the time this is published, it'll be a couple of days old now. Um, but he's going to talk business of photography with me, which he sent me the outline. I was just like, yes, this is going to be amazing. Um, and then with my latitude photography school service that I'm doing, that is going to be a, a site where if you want, you guys can buy, uh, a training course a la carte so you can just do a one-time payment or you can pay a monthly subscription to whichever is amenable to you um, but the first course i have is already out there it is on fine art printing or mastering photo printing and what i'm doing right now is if you buy that course i'm going to give people uh, if you buy it before july 31 i should say 
I'm going to give people one-year access when Latitude Photography School is finally ready. And since I'm no longer working because it's summer and I've sold the house and we're not going to move in now until about August 20 is as soon as we can move in now that we just got some information that had to be pushed back. I'm putting all of my energy into getting this website uh, updated up and running with lots of new uh, material, lots of new content, and just going to be a whole flood of, of stuff coming through. And so people will get a year's access to it if they buy that print course, which is already available. So just looking up brentbergherm.com, uh, you'll see the, the listing for the course there right on the homepage. And if you are interested in the Latitude Photography School, you can type that in, latitudephotographyschool.com, and get put on the email list where I will start sending out little updates of what we're going to be about, what it's going to be covering. And it's uh, going to cover everything from beginners all the way through more advanced, and we'll have lots of stuff there. The, the next signature course I'm making is called Designing Creativity and Photography, and it's all about the creative process and searching for the right compositions and getting the right compositions and the right whatever it takes for you to express what you're intending to express with your photography. Yeah, it sounds like you got a lot of fantastic things coming out. It's exciting. And, uh, of course, you guys have the retreat coming out later on this year. So that is, yeah, the Create Photography Retreat is put on. Uh, it, 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 we're certainly friends and, and somewhat connected with the fellow, but he is uh, the guy that runs it is independent from us at Master Photography Podcast. And they're still doing it for sure. Uh, we just got word that it was still going to be planned. It is going to be in Greenville, South Carolina, and it's happening in October. Um, oh, I forget the dates, <laughs> but, um, it's in early to mid October and I'm going to have to myself no longer be there because, um, the state of Washington, the biggest part is with this whole COVID business, the state of Washington, uh, has some regulations for institutions of higher learning. So universities. And, um, if I were to travel, probably before the end of the year uh, that would just open a whole can of worms that I'm not interested in, in opening. Uh, and I should say if I were to travel, not under the radar as it were, because you can bet I'm going to other places quote under the radar. Um, but as far as this one where it's a very public type thing, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to have to stay home. So I've offered to do uh, a Skype session, you know, to do a, a lesson on, on Skype for the people there, but, I'll be staying home for that, but there's still very lots of others. Uh, so in the in the um, planning on you know, the emails that are going on back and forth, I've seen a lot of people confirming they're still going to be there, which is awesome. I so wish I could be there because I feel like this is a decision. Um, I'm not making the decision I want to make. I'm making the decision I have to make. So yeah, you're kind whatever. of being forced into that. Yeah. It, it kind of is that way, and you know. Because of my position, it is the right decision to make. It's just, <laughs> I wish I could be there. Yeah, I can imagine. And before I do let you go, I did want to tell you I'm looking forward to part two with Rick Salmon because part one was freaking amazing. Awesome. Thank you. That was a you. great, great episode. What he's talking about there is Rick Salmon just published a new book called PhotoQuest. And Rick, when we were going back and forth, he was like, well, you know, how about we make it a couple? And I was like, 
perfect. <laughs> and then after last week's episode, uh, he was like, well, how about we talk about the business of photography next instead of instead of this? I was like, okay, well, we're still going to actually weave in. You just reminded me. We're actually going to weave in a chapter or two from this book on his business of photography talk. But um, still, it's just, yeah, there's actually going to be a part three as well. So oh, <laughs> there's going to be this business of photography where we weave in some more items from PhotoQuest. And then there's going to be um, a whole nother one, too, where we talk about uh, finding your superpower and how that applies to your photography. And um, I mentioned in the last episode, and uh, what's going to be fun is when I tell Rick what my super, what I came up with as my superpower, and uh, it'll be interesting to hear what he has to say. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to that so much as well. Yeah, that's exciting. So it's going to be a three-part one now, huh? I think it's we'll end up doing at least three episodes because this other one with business that's happening this week, it'll be released probably about the same time that, that this episode we're recording right now is released. Um, that one was going to be business of photography, but then he was like, well, we can weave in topics from these two chapters in the book. I'm like, perfect. You know, so technically I think we can call it as a three part about the book. Awesome. We're just, we're just not going to go linearly through the book because we're going to skip around since we're talking business of photography this next episode. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it's going to be exciting. And I, like I said, I love the first part. That was Thank phenomenal. you. That's that, awesome. That was a great episode, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Jeff. We're, or Brett, I'm sorry. I'm Brett. We're <laughs> going to go ahead and wrap up this episode 80 of the Land Photography Podcast. I want to thank you again so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me and talk about travel and outdoor photography. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I just anytime someone's willing to talk this stuff, I'll, you know, <laughs> I just don't stop, it seems like. <laughs> All righty. Well, thank you again, my friend, and I mm -hmm. will let you go now. Alrighty, bye-bye. Yep, bye-bye. So there you have it. That is a wrap on episode 80 of the Liam Photography Podcast with my guest, Brett Bergram, talking about travel and outdoor photography. I do encourage you to check out all of the information that he shared at the tail end of the episode. I will have all of the links in the show notes for this episode. And I'm going to also see if I can get him to share a couple of his travel photography photos uh, to include in the show notes for this episode as well. All right, that is a wrap. Uh, don't forget to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group, but you can join. You only have to answer one question to join the group, and that is the name of the host of the show, which is myself, Liam Douglas. Or I've opened it up so you can give the name of any of the guests I've had on the show uh, in the last year or so, which now, of course, includes Brent. So you can give Brent's name as well to get into the group. Uh, once you're in, you're welcome to share your own images. Please do not share other people's images, even if you have permission. That will get you banned from the group. And also remember that you can contact the show by phone or text at 470-294-8191. Or you can email the show at liam at liamphotography podcast.com and remember sometime in August I will be starting the summer giveaway where the show will be giving away a tripod to one lucky winner. All right I will see you all again in another seven days for episode 81. <music>